The hard thing about trying to leave you guys in a cliffhanger from last week is that you all knew the story already. It's kind of like, yeah, 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 we know he doesn't kill him. You know, it's like, otherwise, like, that was a great setup. Like, I don't know if you remember, but we left Isaac, like, bound with a knife to his throat, and then I didn't say anything else, and you're all like, right, but we know the end. It's like, that just, just ruins it, right? I read the end of a book. You know, you should never read the end of a book before. The beginning of it just ruins it. I did that one time, uh, but thankfully, I wasn't smart enough to understand what was happening in the ending, so I still was surprised. <laughs> Genesis chapter 22 this morning. Last week, as we began the story of Abraham being tested by the Lord, called on to sacrifice his son Isaac, we said that the Lord tested Abraham. The Lord tests his people, and his people obey. Abraham obeyed. And the nature of the Lord's test was requesting that Abraham offer his only beloved son Isaac as a whole burnt offering. And we then discussed how Abraham's obedience flowed out of his fear of the Lord. Remember, we talked at length trying to understand this concept of the fear of the Lord and seeing it then in our own lives. It's a significant piece of what Scripture calls us to. And this was not fear of dread because God was his judge. It wasn't as if um, there was a knife to Abraham's throat if he didn't bring the knife to Isaac's throat. That was not this fear of the Lord as a judge, and it, nor was it merely his awe of God as his creator. Those are both senses. Those are both, both right fears, but it, but it wasn't what Abraham was really experiencing here. Instead, it was his loving, trusting fear of God as his father, the eternal one that Abraham delighted to obey. To pick up where we left off in the story, right? I said the, the Lord, they, they arrive, not the Lord, they arrive at the place, Abraham gathers stones to build the altar. He takes the wood that Isaac had carried and he lays it in place. Then he binds his son, probably tying his feet together, his hands behind his back. And then Abraham lays Isaac on the altar, probably face down on top of the wood so that when Abraham would slit his throat, to kill him, that the blood would drain down and away, just like they did with so many lambs or, or cows or goats in future sacrifices. And without stopping or flinching, Abraham pulls the knife from his belt, moves it toward Isaac's throat. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. There it is. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The Lord provides, brothers and sisters. The Lord provided for Abraham. The Lord provides for his people. If we're still confused as to God's character in making this request, calling Abraham to this act of obedience, here we have that cleared up. Like we said last week, right? We we knew the Lord was testing Abraham which kind of sets up that this isn't going to go the way that we would expect. 
Abraham didn't know that it wasn't going to go that way. So he's acting as this is what I need to do. And, and in his head, trying to problem solve and trusting the Lord for resurrection power. And that's good. It's just not what the Lord had in mind. It is true that God is the rightful owner of everyone and everything. So it's not like God didn't have the right. But we just ask, like, well, how does he say these other things about human sacrifice, forbidding those later and do this? How does that balance out? And we see that as the story plays out. And we have the answer also for how God's promise through Isaac would be maintained. It wasn't just that Abraham could have another son. No, it had to be Isaac. And he had to be alive to have his own offspring for the promise to continue. Well, the promise through Isaac would be maintained by God, not by an actual physical resurrection from the dead. That's inside God's wheelhouse, as it were, but that's not what God intended to hear. Instead, it was by an act of deliverance from death through a substitute being offered in Isaac's place. I mean, it is obvious to us, is it not, that this particular ram was not caught in the thicket on that mountain at that time by accident? I mean, God could have just created the ram right there, uh, but I don't think so. I don't think that's even necessary. I mean, a sovereign God who orchestrates all things had this ram just sort of wandering on its own. Like, how long had it been in the thicket? (laughs) But why was it there? Because God put it there. Like, it was his control because it was his provision. And it doesn't have to say, it's like, and the Lord led a ram and he kind of wandered over here and he thought that that was a nice leaf to, and then all of a sudden his big horns were, you know, we don't need that aspect of the story without, you know, to, in order to see God had that lamb there at that moment. Not a hair falls from our head apart from the will of our father in heaven. The rain falls on the just and on the unjust and the right ram is in the right place at the right time because of God. This was the provision of the Lord. It was obvious to Abraham. First thing that came to his mind and the source of his praise. And this was not the first time that the Lord had provided for his people, was it? So far in Genesis, the Lord has provided a garden worth of food and he's provided spouses and coverings for guilt. He's provided children and the ark for salvation and then protection and victory over enemies for all sorts of God's people. This is not the last time the Lord would provide either. As we continue to move forward in Genesis and beyond, we'll see the Lord provide yet another spouse and more children. We'll see him provide protection and favor in the eyes of those in world uh, places of world power. We'll see him provide promotion, deliverance from famine. Then we'll see deliverance from slavery, deliverance from death, miraculous food in the wilderness, water from a rock. The Lord provides for his people. There's a pattern of the Lord's provision throughout the Bible, right? The Lord knows the needs of his people. He knows what we need before we ask. And he meets our needs. The Lord meets the needs of his people. Our heavenly father meets our needs. Take no thought. What you'll eat, what you'll drink, how you'll be clothed. Lord knows. Lord will meet your needs. All these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness. Our heavenly father meets our needs and he does so in such a way as to draw out a response of worship. What did the Lord provide for Abraham and and for Isaac? Uh, He provided an animal to be offered as a sacrifice to God in the place of Isaac or as a substitute for him. 
Well, what has the Lord provided for us? God, our Father, has provided His Son, His only Son, whom He loves, whom He has loved for all eternity. He has provided Jesus to be the sacrifice for our sin. I mean, Abraham spoke better than he knew in verse 8. You underline, I underline now, I don't know if I've admitted that. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. If you mark things, mark that. Because not only was it fulfilled in that, that ram for Isaac, but it was fulfilled for us. A couple thousand years later, near this very spot, Jesus, the one proclaimed to be the Lamb of God, would offer himself as a sacrifice to take away the sin of the world. And with his life of perfect, sinless obedience, Jesus was qualified to be our substitute, and he willingly offered himself in our place on the cross. There was no burning of physical fire at his sacrifice, but Jesus was consumed by the even hotter wrath of God against sinners. And when the Roman soldiers lifted the mallet to nail him to the cross, no voice from heaven called out to stop them. No sacrifice had ever been more innocent than Jesus. And no sacrifice could ever be more worthy to be offered for the sake of others. The precious blood of Christ shed on the cross was that was like a lamb without blemish and without spot. The perfect sacrifice. Somewhat surprisingly, the New Testament authors do not refer back to this story in speaking of Christ. It's not a reference that they make. It could be as the kind of the intertestamental Jewish writings and then beyond started to almost say that Isaac was the sacrifice that sinners like them needed. Almost like this pushing up of Isaac in, in place of Christ. Like, oh, he didn't even come down from the mountain. Maybe Isaac did die. Maybe he was offered in place of sinners, right? So there's this like building up. So maybe that's why it's just like it's not, because it just, it just screams of Christ. But it doesn't mention it. It's like, I would have thought it would have. The closest connection is probably in Romans 8. In Romans chapter 8, after outlining God's eternal plan of redemption, Paul asks this question. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Here we have verse 32. He who did not spare his own son. What story do you think Paul is thinking of? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There's the connection. See, while Abraham had been called on to sacrifice his own son, Isaac ultimately was spared. But Jesus, God's son, was not spared. He was given up or provided as a substitute by God for us all. And now it is true that there is no greater gift than God could have given us, right? There's no greater gift that God could have given us than his own son, the spotless lamb of God, Jesus Christ. No one of more value, no greater gift that God could have given. But do you know that that's also not the only gift that God has given his people? Not that he's given us better than Jesus, but he's given us 
more than Jesus, or more properly, he's given us more through Jesus than just the sacrifice for our sins. That's the lavish generosity of the grace of God, because God's grace is lavish and sufficient. When we talk about grace, we talked about this last semester in student service, you have to think free, you have to think undeserved, you have to think of a gift giving when you talk about God's grace. What kind of gifts does God give? Lavish gifts. Gifts that are given to such an extent that nothing else is needed. That's what we're talking about here. And the same lavish grace of God that provided Christ for us, the same grace also provides with Christ or through Christ so much more. In fact, everything that we need for life and godliness, everything that we need, that's sufficiency. From the fullness of Christ, we have received grace upon grace. We have received the grace of God in everyday life, grace that is sufficient for us in our weakness so that God's power can be displayed through our weakness. That the days where you feel strong, you you think you don't need God's grace, that you have what you need in yourself, and you're wrong. And if you're displaying your power, you're not displaying God's power. So when you have no power, God's sufficient, lavish grace comes in that much stronger, and it's displayed to you in the lives of those witnessing your life as we live in community together. God faithfully promises that the temptations of this world will not prove too much for us. Why? Because his grace is sufficient. He will provide a way of escape so that we can endure. And his throne of grace is open to us, an open invitation, a beckoning hand. So we can bring our cares and cast them upon him. And we can prayerfully lay our anxieties at his feet. And he promises that his peace, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. It's lavish grace that is sufficient no matter what the test is that you walk through. Whatever temptation is thrown at you, God's grace is there in abundance and sufficiency. You have all that you need in him. That's through Christ. So don't don't fail to see the provision of, of salvation through Jesus as an act of God's grace, but don't stop there. God has given so much more through Christ, every day, enduring, persevering grace, all the way to the end. It will never run dry. Because it is the omnipotent God who is with us, we can be brought low and be sustained by grace. Or we can be brought high and sustained by his grace. And we can face plenty And there's grace needed to face plenty or abundance. And we can also face hunger. There's grace sufficient for that. We can do all things through him who strengthens us. Because there is nothing, there is nothing that God requires of us that he does not provide us grace to endure. We need that just etched into our souls, don't we? As I can say that, and and then there's this spark of fear that I don't want to see that proven. I want to live unneedy. I want to live easy. But God, God doesn't often teach in easy, does he? 
God teaches through the tests of his people, but he provides grace in those tests. You know how strong he is when you are weak, and you know how lavish his grace when you are empty. You know how sufficient his grace is that it just has never failed as you walk through those darkest darkest tests that he never leaves and he never forsakes. Like God's grace is lavish and, lavish and sufficient. And for his people, there is nothing that he requires of us that he does not provide us grace to endure. And if you say, prove it, I'd say Genesis 22. Right? And that's really the amazing but unspoken thing about this whole story in Genesis, I think, right? We look at it and we think Abraham. It's like we look at it and we think Isaac, But Abraham's faith in God was not his own, as if he would claim credit for that. Abraham's love for God was not somehow uniquely self-generated. Abraham's obedience was not self-energized. God had not left him alone. Abraham's fear of God was produced in him by the grace of God. Scripture itself makes this clear to us in all of those other passages that I talked about. That didn't become true in the New Testament. That That was true all the way back from the garden. And Abraham recognized this. Abraham doesn't claim credit. Abraham doesn't point to himself. Abraham points to God. The banner over this whole story, like if there was a scrapbook and there was a picture taken of that sacrifice and that whole journey, right, of camping visits with dad, it would have been the Lord provided. He doesn't praise himself. He praises God. And like Abraham, we should come away with this, from this story more impressed with God's faithfulness than with Abraham's obedience. Right? The Lord provided for Abraham, so Abraham receives that and praises. Right? The Lord provides and his people praise. The Lord tests and his people obey in fear of him. The Lord provides and his people praise. Verse 14 So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. See, so in verse 14, we see clearly Abraham recognized the faithful provision of God in sparing Isaac. But there's so much more than that. I love that Abraham didn't call the name of that place, the Lord provided. He didn't say the the Lord saw to it. It's not even just this backward-looking thing. Like the Lord had just made a provision, like the most significant provision, the most uh, deep act of grace that, that Abraham could possibly have experienced. But Abraham's not like, yep, that happened. The Lord what? What does it say? The Lord will provide. On the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. He praises God as the Lord who would continue to be gracious and faithful to him. So how should we respond to the gracious provision of God, our Heavenly Father? Things like daily food and clothing? How many times have we said, give us this day our daily bread? And how many times have we forgotten to say thank you? Things like daily food and clothing, health, friends, family, forgiveness, salvation, sustaining grace, Uh, the promise of an eternal heavenly home, we have this gracious provision of God. And like Abraham, when we have received what we do not deserve, we should receive those things humbly and gratefully. We should praise God for his boundless generosity. Think about how much we have received 
what do you have that you haven't received? Think about how much we've received and yet think about then how much we take for granted. Isn't it easy to just take it for granted? I get up in front of you and talk about it every week. I take it for granted. You know, even the priceless and undeserved gift of our salvation, somehow, proof of a fallen world, it can become commonplace to us. Yeah, 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 Jesus is our sacrifice. What? You feel that in your heart too, though, right? Like a, 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 a dulling of the, the fervor, right? A cooling of the passion, an, an assumption of the grace. It's like, well, it's come so faithfully to me, maybe I do deserve it. No, we don't. If we're not careful to remind ourselves of these truths and call ourselves individually and corporately, call ourselves to praise God as the only one who could provide and the only one who did provide our salvation through the death of his son and all of those other needs, May God grant us repentance from our, our ingratitude and that, that careless presumption. Like, well, of course he did that. Oh. Lord, deliver us. Deliver me. We are undeserving sinners. You are worthy of our praise like we sang today. God's people respond to God's grace with gratitude and praise and by walking in the fear of the Lord love for him, trust in him, obedience to him, devotion to him as our father. Genesis 22, starting verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. The Lord promises Abraham, the Lord promises his people The Lord's grace, having been provided in this ram on the mountain in place of Isaac, was not exhausted. The Lord's grace was not exhausted to him, and it it never can be exhausted. That has to do with that endless, lavish sufficiency. And using my hopefully sanctified imagination here, there's questions about that sometimes. I, I like to look at this passage and see Abraham and Isaac seated on the ground side by side. Uh, perhaps watching the flames of the sacrifice burn down. The Lord speaks to Abraham a second time on this mountain. And I wonder, did Isaac hear those words as well? I think he did, because they had to do with him as well. When God, what God said is significant, of course, but look at how he said it. Look at how he begins in verse 16. By myself, I have sworn... Although the Lord is said at many places in the Old Testament to swear or undertake an oath, this is the only place in Genesis that the Lord swears under explicit obligation to his own character. 
like putting himself up almost as collateral for the fulfillment of this promise. Kind of like in that Genesis 15. I think, did you preach that text, brother? Like where, where Abraham prepares the animals and has to keep them, right? He separates them, just sort of leaves. And then who passes through? The Lord passes through. And do you remember what that signified when that uh, firebrand, that's probably how the King James says it, when that torch of signifying God's presence goes through? Like that whole ceremony was just kind of like, may I be cut in half if I fail to keep these promises. And the Lord just reiterates that same thing here. By myself, I have sworn. And the only, other, the only three times, four times in the, in the Old Testament, this time in Genesis, Isaiah, and Jeremiah, the Lord swears by himself only those few times. The author of Hebrews draws out the significance of this particular instance, though. It's worth stopping and pausing that the Lord would say this. It's in Hebrews chapter 6. Starting in verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. And then the author explains these things to us for people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. Once you say, well, I swear on this, it's like, okay, now, now I can believe you. People swear by something greater than themselves. In all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, show what? To show the unchangeable character of his purpose, the certainty of his faithfulness, he guaranteed it. God guaranteed his promise to Abraham with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, the uh, sacredness of an oath and the nature of God's character, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us just like Abraham did. So Abraham's like, wow, God said, God, God promises, well, he's not going to lie. God swears. God swears by himself? Abraham's like, well, all right. I, had, I thought I believed at before, but now, maybe kick off the shoes here, buddy. This is holy ground. Of all the promises that God made to Abraham, this passage really is the most significant. I think you could even say it's climactic in the life of Abraham. This whole event that culminates in this promise from God is, is climactic in Abraham's life. See, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, this oath was remembered as the basis for divine blessing of future generations. How often? Thank you for asking. In Genesis, it points back to this oath to future generations. In Exodus, in Numbers, in Deuteronomy, in Joshua, in Judges, and in Jeremiah. I think I had the Psalter there too. I don't know why I didn't write that. But God's like, the oath that I made, the oath that I made that will be fulfilled, that time I swore by myself, that's here in Genesis 22. I mean, this is that climax. This, this is a turning point. It's, it's huge. At each stage of fulfillment of those promises, it's like God's looking back. It's like, well, of course I did this. I swore by myself to Abraham that I would do so. 
What did God promise to Abraham? We could see in verses 17 and 18. And he really is repeating many of the same things that he's promised to Abraham before. Back, I looked back at the four categories in Genesis chapter 12, the first time of those promises, and three of them are here again. Uh, God said, I promise people, multiplied offspring. We see that. Promising a protecting presence. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. There will be victory. It's because I'm going to be with you. Blessing those who bless you, cursing those who curse you. God promises people. He promised a protecting presence. He promised this program that you will be a blessing to the nations. He doesn't emphasize the land here. He's made this promise to him. It's not like it doesn't exist anymore, but he doesn't emphasize that. He's not in that real portion of the land as much right there. It will be part of it. Right, but he had made these promises before. So this time that's not included, but those other, other elements are. But as God repeats his promises, he also emphasizes them. I tried to draw that out in my reading of it. I, it's not, I will bless you. What does he say? I will. You have it open, right? Surely bless you. I will multiply your offspring. I will, I thought you learned the first time, surely multiply your offspring. And as we read, we may wonder, why does God repeat his promises to Abraham like this? I mean, he said it back in chapter 12. He just keeps bringing it up. And he says some of the same things again. Like, what's the point? Well, for one thing, we're, we're talking about repetition a few times over a few decades, like it's taken us a, little, a couple months to go through it, but Abraham lived this out year after year. Also, these are huge, nearly unbelievable promises, which Abraham has not seen and will not see the fulfillment of. They bear repeating as he relies on these promises and the faithfulness of God. And then finally, why would God repeat these promises? Well, it's just because Abraham's in the Bible. It doesn't mean he isn't a lot like us. Just because you've heard a promise once, that doesn't mean you always remember it. And even if you remember it, it doesn't, it doesn't mean you always keep it at the front of your mind. It doesn't mean that you always live as if the promises are true, even if you do know them and remember them. They bear repeating. God's not like the husband whose wife asks him, why don't you tell me that you love me? To which he replied, it's like, well, I told you once at the wedding, I'll tell you if anything changes. God's not like that. Husbands, we better not be like that. But God is not like that. God graciously promises and graciously reminds us of his promises. He graciously reminds Abraham, so obviously we need to be reminded too. So what promises have you forgotten? That's kind of a defeating question, isn't it? If I ask you if you've forgotten something and you remember, then you didn't forget. You have forgotten promises. I've forgotten promises. Maybe more. What promises that you haven't forgotten are you not living in light of? Because there's more to remembering than just knowing. What promises have you forgotten to live in the light of? In his word, God essentially says, essentially, I swear by myself that I will surely forgive the sins of those who trust in Jesus. If you've trusted in Jesus are you assured based on the unchangeable nature of God's character that you are forgiven? Or do you have questions about that? I know I have questions about, it's like, really, really forgiven? All my sins cast into the bottom of the sea? Truly separated from me as far as the east is from the west? Is it really that good of news? 
I swear by myself. And couldn't we not rephrase Jesus' words to his disciples to say this, guys, I swear by myself that I'm preparing a place for you and will surely come again to take you to myself. Verily, verily, I say unto you, truly, truly, guys, I'm not, I'm not joking around about this. I'm leaving, but I'm coming back. It's better for you that I go away. I'm preparing a place. And why would I prepare a place if I'm not going to come and take you to myself? It's the whole point of preparing the place so that we can be together. I swear to you on myself, I will come back for you. Or to return to to Romans 8, Paul said that he was sure that nothing physical or spiritual in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus Christ. Our Lord, I am sure, I am persuaded, I am certain of this. Well, how could he be so sure if it were not for the faithful promise of God in those things? That which God had sworn by himself, as it were, to accomplish. That nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is ours, ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. May the Holy Spirit bring more of his promises to our minds and to our hearts May we be convinced of their fulfillment because of the nature of an oath and the nature of God's character because our God is faithful and he's our father and he will not let us down. His character is on the line and God will not act contrary to his character. God will not allow his glory to be besmirched, to be lessened. It will always be displayed in a greater way than we think is possible. The other point of this passage in Genesis 22 that really sticks out uh, to me, to others, perhaps to you, is that with these statements of God's promises, it's that, that God bases them off of what? Did you notice this? What does God base the fulfillment of these promises off of? He swears by his own character, but then he says twice something else. Did anybody catch what it was? Abraham's obedience, because you have, verse 16, I will. He says that right at the outset of that. And then again in verse 18, like bookends to these promises, because you have obeyed my voice. It's kind of like, wait a minute. I thought grace was lavish and sufficient and free. I thought it didn't depend on me. How are we to understand this? If God's promise is now shifted from being freely gracious to being a reward for obedience, does God rewind back to Genesis 15 when he passed through those dead animals? I'm like, all right, Abraham, you too. Like I walked through, now you got to walk through. And if you walk through, then I'll fulfill my promises. Is God's blessing because of grace or because of works? Are his promises free or a reward? Apparently, some have actually used this passage to emphasize works over faith. So I read one author who kind of answers this and says this, makes this very true point. Every promise to Abraham up to this point has been essentially unconditional. 12, 13, 15, 17. So the popo- this postponement, he says, of the announcement of this cause and effect relationship clearly subordinates Abraham's performance to God's promise. It subordinates works to faith. It, support, it subordinates merit to grace. They can't be equal. 
And there's no reason over the course of this narrative where God has made promises unconditionally given to Abraham that now all of a sudden we're supposed to take works and chuck them back beforehand. God said, Genesis 12, you go, I'm, I am blessing you. And then because God had made that promise, Abraham goes. Grace before works. But just because grace comes before works doesn't mean that there, is, that there are no works related to it. Another author looked at it this way. For if that promise was before gracious, which is now ascribed to a reward, it appears that whatever God grants to good works, whatever rewards are given to his people, ought to be received as from grace. You see, Abraham's fear of the Lord and his obedience flowing out of that fear was not something that Abraham had worked up in himself all on his own. It was the fruit of God's work in him. Because we dead sinners can do nothing to please God on our own, never have, never will. God is not glorified by his people acting righteously apart from dependence on him. Did did you know that? In your life that God is not glorified but what you can do for him apart from him? Now, apart from him, you can do nothing. So that would be a really short list. Life is about God displaying his glory for, in, and through undeserving sinners like Abraham and like us. That's what life is about. Not about what we can do, but what God has done and is doing and will do. So I hope I can get this quote right. I was talking to Jason Powell about it. Um, and it went, and it was, it was just one of those Hebrews 4 cutting knives. That Christianity is a, not about learning so much that we no longer need God. Don't we pursue that sometimes, though? Read so much, understand so much, know so much, so that we can use it as methods to accomplish God's purposes. And then bring that back to me, like, hey, look what I did for you. And if it's just you, then it's not God. And there's a lot that can be accomplished in the flesh, and a lot of it can look like God's stuff. But if it's us stuff and not actual God's stuff, then it's worthless. And we need to learn that. Even when we look forward to the rewards for our good works, you know that, right, from the promises of the New Testament? Hey, you deserve nothing, and I've been gracious to you. I'm going to continue to be gracious to you. Then I'm going to produce change in you. Then you're going to do things through my strength that's glorifying to you, and then I'm going to reward you for it. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. It's like, that's how lavish it is. I'm going to bless and reward you for the things that I do through you. That's what's happening here. The rewards for our good works. So like, what are we going to have? Hey, God, look what I did for you. Like, what? Like, look what you did for me. That we, we sang that, I think, last week, maybe. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Those, 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 that fruit, those rewards, it's, it's what God did in us by his Holy Spirit. And Lord willing, we'll, we plan to look more closely at the proper understanding of good works in our lives. Next week, we're going to go to James chapter 2. Uh, kind of that third time that talks about Abraham, justification, and faith, and works. I think like two months ago, one of the students submitted a little question. Be like, yeah, but what about James 2? 
Justification, sola fide, and James. Like, man, you already read James? All right, well, that's good. Let's get to that. So students come back, because we might not address it in student service, but Lord willing, we'll talk about it next week. This is important. Not this week, though. The Lord promises, and then Abraham continues. The Lord promises to his people, and his people live their lives. Verse 19, Abraham and Isaac, they come off the mountain. They get those two guys with the donkey three days back, and then he lives there. And in the life of Abraham himself, there's just nothing else significant. There are decades more, but just nothing story-worthy. Someone asked me last week if I thought Abraham had told Sarah what God had called him to do before they left. Uh, The text is silent. I think he did not. Uh, It's unlikely anyone would have allowed him to leave on that journey if he knew its real purpose. Isaac didn't know. The servants didn't know. I mean, moms. (laughs) Hey, Leanne, I got to take... I just want to take James with me. Uh, I'm going to go kill him, and I'm going to bring him back. And we'll see you later. (laughs) Keith, (laughs) Robbie, Jake, (laughs) Peter lost it. (laughs) Get over here. Fast. I can just imagine their return, though, right? Sarah comes out of the tent. So, how was your trip? (laughs) Isaac, did you enjoy the camping with, with your dad? And then there's like Mediterranean crickets in the background. And Abraham's like, uh, I got to go check on the blocks. <laughs> I'll be back in a week. No, that's not the point of this story. Uh, but this remarkable foundational story about God's test and Abraham's obedience, about God's provision and Abraham's praise, about God's promise, it ends with Abraham just returning to his life. The ordinary life of faith waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises. Fulfillment that, again, he didn't see. That can sometimes be the the hardest part. We don't really like the word ordinary very much, do we? I mean, there can be no doubt that God's tests are difficult to endure, but it's like there's another type of test that follows the big hard tests. The, The test of ordinariness. The test of boring faithfulness. The test of waiting in quietness. Not sure how things are just going to proceed. And then Abraham continues just for decades in this just type of ordinariness. Like I've experienced that. Have you ever had a really hard battle against temptation? And then by God's grace, there's victory. And then as you sort of settle out of that, you sin. Where did that come from? It's like we want our flesh doesn't take a day off. This is like after the big battle, it's not like there's not going to be another skirmish for it, right? We can't turn our back on sin in those type of ways. So there's just a test that follows the test. And the test that you aren't aware of can sometimes be the harder tests. What will you do when it's not catastrophic? What will faithfulness look like in ordinary when it's just a Tuesday? See, whether your life seems chaotic or calm, whether you are entering a test or enduring a test or exiting a test or enjoying rest from a test, you need to remember to live in the fear of the Lord 
delighting to trust and love and obey your heavenly father. There's never a break from it. The rest that we are longing for is future and eternal. We're not resting now. Never forget that our God is not just a God who tests. He's a God who provides. He's a God who promises. And then maybe we grow then in our faith and our love for him in the chaotic or the calm, in the enduring or in the waiting. May we grow in our faith. May we grow in our love. May we grow in our devotion. May we walk in the fear of the Lord all our days. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, may God do this in us. That's our request, Father, that this good work that you did in our father Abraham, the father of all who believe, the father of those who fear you, that the work that you did in him, that you would do that same work in us. May we not despise the tests that cause us, that that draw out of us our, our need and our faithlessness or our faithfulness, the, the hard things that, that your strength is sufficient for. May we not dread those. May we not despise the chastening of the Lord. Thank you that you test and train and discipline and encourage and chastise us. You are the best, uh, the perfect of all fathers. You know what we need physically and spiritually. You know what is ahead of us this day and this week, uh, all of our lives for the trials and the temptations that we will face. You know they are, they are even from your hand. They're planned by you. Now, what you uh, will bring us through, you will provide sufficient grace for. May we cling to that truth, testify to that truth with each other. You are worthy of of that trust and devotion. One day we will be with you. The tests will be over. Sin will be dealt with. Suffering will end. And we will be with you and see you face to face. Please remind me of that this afternoon and tomorrow. Remind us of it uh, Tuesday. Uh, remind that us, us of that Wednesday or Thursday. We're not just longing for Friday and Saturday, but we're longing for Christ. Now, we love you. Help us to love you more. Thank you for your love for us. Amen.